I would like to start off today's message by taking a look at Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. And then baptism is something that we have on our minds at this time of year. And let's start off with Jesus' own baptism. Matthew 3, and starting in verse 13, says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, that, and yet you come to me. And Jesus replied to him, Let it be so for now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Okay, all right. <laughs> and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. So when, when Jesus came to John to be baptized, he, he came not as a sinner. He did not come to John as a sinner. He had no sins to be forgiven. He did not need to be washed clean. And so when John questioned him about this and said, wait, whoa, what, what are we doing here? Jesus said, okay, let's just do this because it's necessary. It's the proper thing to do to establish, I, I would say to you, to establish a pattern of behavior. He said, let it be so for now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness, to do the things that God has told us to do. It was a full immersion baptism. Jesus went down into the water. It says, when he came up out of the water, and then he received the Holy Spirit, which was represented by a descending dove. And so in this way, Jesus teaches us that baptism is an act that we should do to fulfill all righteousness. Even here, Jesus comes to be baptized, even though he really didn't need to be baptized. When you think about the whole idea of sin and repentance and forgiveness, but he went through it as an example for us. Now, he was not doing this to fulfill any old covenant requirement. This was not part of the old covenant that he was participating in. Baptism was, and you know, for the new covenant, something new. It's actually the new covenant replacement for circumcision. Uh, that's a different message. I've given it at different times, but the baptism that we go through is really the new covenant's replacement for circumcision. And it's better in so many ways because it's applicable to all the same way. And baptism is something that is expected of believers and followers of Christ. Within the church, we, we take that for granted. And I am continually amazed at how contentious an issue it actually is with a lot of folks who vehemently argue against baptism. The complete biblical procedure for baptism, and this, you know, this is like going right down to the basics, okay? The biblical procedure for baptism is that a person be fully immersed, and then they come up out of the water. 
And for the church of God, something happens which is different from the example that we read about in Jesus' baptism. Something happens that's different. After coming up out of the water, a duly appointed representative of the new covenant church lays hands upon that person and prays for them that they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what happened with you, right? And you? We just had a couple of baptisms like that. Now, we don't read of John laying hands on Jesus. We don't, we don't see that in Jesus' baptism. John did not lay hands upon him so that he might receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus directly from the Father. So if Jesus' baptism is to establish the pattern of righteousness that we are to follow, does this mean that we can then omit the laying on of hands when we baptize, when the church of God baptizes? Well, the answer is no. No, that is not what it indicates for us. Because, I don't know, I hope this isn't too much of a stretch for your imagination, but Jesus is different. <laughs> Go with me to Hebrews 6. The Hebrews uh, would be probably written, I don't know, three decades after the death of, of Jesus. And in Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews is, is getting into talking about the change in the priesthood and another, uh, other matters of new covenant procedure and behavior. And then in chapter 6 of Hebrews, starting in verse 1, we get a very succinct, um, kind of like a bullet point list of core, fundamental, basic doctrine. So it says, Hebrews 6 verse 1 says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. So he wants to get into some of this other stuff, you know, talking about priesthood and talking about the temple and sacrifices and so forth. But he says, okay, we got to make sure we're, we're good on the basics. So let's move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. You'll find in uh, some modern translations that the word baptism, it's there in the Greek, it's been changed. Translations have blurred it over and said it's about something else, washings and stuff like that. But the word is baptismo. So following a full immersion baptism comes the laying on of hands for the receipt of the Spirit. And this is listed in Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 2, as one of the first basic teachings of Christ. So the scriptures are telling us this is foundational. And my purpose today is to try to build on a foundation, on this foundation, about the laying on of hands. And to see it and understand it as a picture of our relationship 
to the church, which was established by Jesus Christ. And the difference between our baptism and Jesus' baptism is he has a different relationship to the church than we do because he's in charge. He is the head of the church. So let's discuss the church and you. Church and you. A big topic, I think it's as we move into the uh, 21st century, the culture around us is swirling all around us and there's a lot of confusion. So I, I think it's worthwhile to talk about our relationship to the church and I'm also going to tie it in and show you how it relates to the Passover itself. So to be baptized and to have hands laid upon you requires something. You have to do something. It requires you to present yourself to the church. Uh, you don't baptize yourself. You don't lay hands upon yourself. You cannot you know, run down the dock at the lake, do a cannonball into the lake, pop up out of the water, put hands on your own head and say, it's done. You have to present yourself to the church. And this first basic teaching and instruction on the path to putting on the mind of Christ and receiving our salvation from death and resurrection purposefully puts you and me into a situation where, where we're interacting with God through his church. And that's how the, the whole ball or the whole thing starts rolling along. And God set it up so that you, you need to start interacting with his church. And he does it on purpose. And with regard to the laying on of hands, specifically setting it up, you've been set up by God, purposefully setting it up so that you have to interact with those in his church who are appointed to lead and to administer within that church. And that's where you get into the heavy lifting. <laughs> I won't be able to cover it all but I want to talk about some things. Some, some I've mentioned before. Some are a little bit of musing that I have to add with regard to the holiday season. So the laying on of hands that I want to talk about is performed by the elders of the church. Now, within the church of God, and I, I don't, this is, in some ways you could say this is the United Church of God, but I believe within the Church of God. We have three scripturally based categories of leadership. This would be a good one to, you know, write it down, think about. Pastor. Okay, let's begin there. There's a, there's a pastor. And that is followed by an elder and a deacon. Those are the three offices that we have and we recognize within the Church of God. So the pastor is kind of our way of designating the bishop. Please don't call me bishop. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of weird. But it, the word in Greek is episkope, right? And it means an administrator. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 is where that's mentioned. Uh, 
I don't want to really you know, delve too deeply in that, but it says, that, oh, that's actually verse 2, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says, now the overseer, that's the NIV writing there, and the New King James, it says the bishop. The overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. And it goes through all these, categor- these uh, characteristics that the person should have before appointed to that task. And the episcopate is the word there, the bishop, which really means an administrator. If you look it up and you do a word search on that study, it means someone who administrates. And we, we call it a pastor. So the other is the elder. We have three elders in this room right now. Right, Mr. Adams, Mr. Boykin, and myself. An elder, if you go, if we're in Timothy, go to chapter 5. An elder is presbyteros. The elder is a teaching and an anointing role within the church. First uh, Timothy 5, verse 17 Let's see, says the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. So it's saying here that an elder also directs the affairs of the church. Well, a pastor is also an elder. But an elder isn't necessarily a pastor. Okay? And uh, James 5, verse 14. This is where anointing is. We see that. So we see teaching, elders who do teaching, and anointing um, in James 4, or no, James 5, verse 14. Uh, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil. Okay, so we've got the pastor, Episcopal, that's an administrator. We've got an elder, Presbyteros, that's a teaching and anointing role. And then we've got a deacon. Okay, we have a couple of deacons here in the room, Mr. Massey and uh, Mr. Kosher. And the deacon is one who attends to the material needs of the church, alrighty? And that's in 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. And the word there is diakonos. That's kind of where we get the word deacon from. We just lifted it out of the Greek. So a pastor is actually an elder and a deacon as well. You know, deacon means minister, one who ministers to the church. So a pastor is an elder and a deacon as well. An elder is also a deacon, is also one who ministers to the church. And a deacon is just a deacon, one who ministers to the church. So when you seek out the laying on of hands, as I mentioned, it involves not just going to the church and saying, hey, 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 buddy, but to the appointed elders within the church. And in that way, recognizing them as the duly appointed administrators and leaders within the church. So God sets it up so that you start interacting with this structure that, that, you know, it's an organization that has structure and people in in positions of leadership and so forth. Go to Acts chapter 8. And uh, verse 14. Philip has gone off to Samaria and he starts baptizing people. 
And uh, lots of big news because, you know, the, this was new going to the uh, Sumerian area and baptizing people. And Philip went and did this. And so the elders in Jerusalem heard about it. And they said, well, we're going to go and check it out. What's going on up there? You know, so they went up, they checked it out. And in verse 14, it says, okay, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. They had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So these people were baptized by Philip, who was a deacon. Interesting. But when they came to the point where they needed to have the hands laid upon them, they had to go to the elder. Philip apparently couldn't do that. It wasn't his role. And Peter and John came along and they fulfilled that role. The people had been baptized by Philip, who was a deacon, but they had not received the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. And the apostles, Peter and John, came to sometimes later and laid hands on them with prayer. Then they received the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter and John were both elders. 2 John 1, verse 1. Second John, hard to find, this is a little teeny weeny book. Second John and verse one, uh, John writing here, and he starts off saying, the elder. Okay, I'm an elder is what he's saying there. I, John, I'm an elder, okay? Um, first Peter five, verse one. Uh, Peter writing here says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Okay? So these men were elders, and they did the laying on of hands. So, I put it to you that the laying on of hands is very much connected to the whole idea of leadership and accepting leadership within God's church in a way that the actual water immersion itself isn't. So they're very close. I mean, when we do a baptism, we do them boing, boing, right? Person comes up out of the water, we lay hands upon them. But they're actually separate events that mean different things. And the laying on of hands goes to the elder, okay? And it's connected to the appointed roles of leadership within God's church. And I believe that this helps us, and it definitely helps me understand why Jesus did not have any human authority figure lay hands upon him. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And if you think about it, I mean, as the head of the church, he doesn't really, you know, put himself under the authority or need to recognize that, you know, he submits to the authority of any of the members of the church whether it's a deacon or an elder or, you know, a teacher or anybody. Jesus is the head of the church. And so for Jesus' baptism, the receipt of the Holy Spirit is administered directly from the Father. The only one who Jesus accepts as an authority is the Father. Okay, what about Pentecost? Pentecost. 
this is a little bit of a um, taking care of uh, loose ends. What about Pentecost? Acts 1 verse 5. Because in Pentecost, we see something here. It says, um, I'm not going to go through the whole account. We'll probably go through this more thoroughly at Pentecost. But for the time being, just jump into, um, where is it, verse 5 I want which says, uh, Jesus speaking here says, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the disciples had been baptized and now they were going to receive the Holy Spirit. And in the instance of Pentecost, they were going to receive the Holy Spirit directly from God, okay? And tongues of fire would come upon them and this would be a sign validating the experience, okay? We don't, I mean, I, when I was baptized, I did not have any tongues of fire on my head. I, uh, I, I didn't notice any miracles. I've talked with people who've uh, told me that miracles did happen with them. It did not happen with me. I was baptized and, you know, for all intents and purposes, I just felt wet. The sign was me having the hands laid upon me by an elder in the church. That was the sign for me. Tongues of fire would have been interesting. I don't know if it would have made a difference in my life, but it didn't happen. So the disciples at Pentecost now become apostles and they would go forth and they would baptize. And God would continue to pour out his Holy Spirit on people using them as his representatives. Using them as his representatives. And the laying on of hands is a graphic symbol instituted by God and it is a reminder to us that he accomplishes his work through human beings and many people find that a hard pill to swallow I don't know if it's ever been uh, an issue for you but I've seen it plenty and I've experienced it myself that can be a hard pill to swallow why well, because we see the faults. We see the faults in other human beings. And it's so easy to ask, how then can this be of God? And I put it to you that working your way through this particular issue calls upon you to exercise a lot of spiritual maturity. It calls upon you, for instance, to exercise many of the fruits of the Spirit to deal with the reality of God working with you through other human beings and putting certain people in positions where they, they have to make a call on this or that. Well, you have to use the spirit of patience, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit, long-suffering, meekness, self-control, faithfulness. Go and look at all the fruits of the flesh. Do this on your own time. Look at the fruits of the flesh and just think about how many of those are about lording it over people and how you interact with people and how they would relate to your relationship with the church. This calls for wisdom and spiritual maturity. So let's talk a little bit more about leadership and responsibility within the church. 
Go with me to Colossians 1, verse 12. It says this. It says, okay, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people to the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And kingdom means rule. Basilia, the rule of the son he loves, in whom he, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So through Christ, you have been delivered from your bondage to sin and death. And we've covered that, I think we've covered that a few times here in the congregation. And we'll talk about it more at the Passover. But you are brought out of the bondage of sin not to be free from all restraint or to do as you please. That is not what is happening here. You are removed, as we read there, from darkness into light. You could be moved from Egypt into the promised land. When God freed them, he did not say, feel free to roam the country. They were brought out of Egypt and they were put into another situation where there was rulership. You are brought from being not a people into God's holy nation. You're moved from being ruled by the power of darkness and ignorance into being ruled by the beloved Son of God. Not to be free to do as you jolly well please. You've been brought out of sin and placed into God's church. Colossians 1 verse 15, let's pick it up there, goes on and says, okay, the Son, the beloved Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and by him. For he is before all things. He is the supreme, okay? And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So Christ is preeminent over all things. The only thing he is subject to is the Father, which you can read about in 1 Corinthians 15. And still, we don't see that in its completeness at this point in human history. Until the appointed time of his return, Christ's dominion is not seen over all things. People out there do not see Christ's rule over all things. They don't accept it either. At present, all eyes in heaven are upon Christ as the head of his body, which is the church. That's where the focus is right now. Go to Ephesians 5, verse 21. 
I'll pick verse 21 to start because I think this is a really important way to begin all talk of how we interact with one another in relationship to authority and so forth. It says, submit to one another in fear of God. And I think that phrase, submit to one another, is very, very important. Very important. And the church is regulated by this principle, mutual submission. And Paul will go on and he's going to give an example of husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, this is a principle, mutual submission. Teachers, disciples, mutual submission. Servers and being served, mutual submission. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 22. Okay, here's he giving a practical example. It says, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now drop down to verse 33, which says, however, speaking to the husbands here, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So the real objective, if you think about what he's saying here, uh, the real objective from this life lesson of a godly marriage is an understanding of our relationship to God through his church. Just, you know, you read through those scriptures and it's, he's saying, this is about Christ and the church. That's what's really the, the lesson here. Christ and the church, which is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Now you're in Ephesians go to verse 11 and uh, I want to read through verses 11 through 13 which say this I've covered this a few times in the past uh, six months or so it says so Christ gave himself sorry Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature and attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And the context, if you read, you know, what comes before that, it is all about the body of Christ. So within the church, Christ has appointed some people to lead, some to serve. That's what a deacon does. Some to teach. That's what elders do. Some to administer. That's what pastors do. Here the example is teaching. I believe that what, what is really going on here is he's actually itemizing a number of different varieties of teaching. Those who are sent forth, those who evangelize, those who teach, and so forth. But that's arguable. But the, 
emphasis is definitely on teaching and there's other aspects of ministry administration serving but this is the uh, about teaching here and the point is that there's structure within God's church um, God's church is not a flash mob it's not how it works who does not know what a flash mob is anyone okay you don't I'll explain it to you later okay you're the only one <clears throat> It's not a spontaneous eruption. Let's put it that way, okay? That's not what the church is all about. Now, say, saying that, having put that out on the table and talking about structure and talking about authority, I want you to be very, very clear about something. The Bible itself is very clear about this, and so ought we. The Bible is very clear that each and every one of you, each and every one of us, has a direct and personal relationship with Christ and through him you can go directly to the Father and the throne of grace anytime okay you don't need to go through anybody you don't go through the deacons elders or the pastors you have that right that is yours you have a direct relationship with God and Christ your access to him does not go through the church However, and I don't want to be absolute on this, but however, much of what God does with you is done through the church. How he chooses to interact with you is through the church. Can he, does he hear and answer your prayers directly? Yes, of course. Can he, does he bless you directly? Yes. Can he and does he give insight and discernment to you directly? Yes. And that, that is one to be a little wary of, though. Because we're also told with this you know, same promise that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding, we're also told that no scripture is of private interpretation. As I mentioned last week, this calls for wisdom. Sometimes the scriptures will throw stuff at you that are, they seem contradictory or, or you know, moving in different directions. It calls for wisdom. You, are, you have a direct connection with your Lord and Savior and with your Father, right? But at the same time, he says, yes, but no scripture is, is a private interpretation. And the only way you're going to get to a point where you don't have private interpretation is through the church. Go to Ephesians. Well, we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Let's read verses 14 through 16, which go on to say, okay, he's given all these people um, specifically types of teachers and so forth, and we touched a little bit on it, but it goes on and says, okay, because of this, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Yeah, there's people out there, folks, that they want your tithe money. They want your, you know, <laughs> they want your allegiance. Be careful. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole 
body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love and each part does its work. And when you think about the church and the church leadership, one of the primary functions of the leadership within the church is to provide instruction. There's more. I mean, it takes work to put on a service, but that involves a lot more people, you know? The primary focus on this section is about teaching, and it's one of the main things that God is accomplishing through the leadership within his church, instruction. Okay, so let's talk about the spirit of leadership and responsibility. And this is going to take us into the Passover. Now, when it comes to how we interact with other people, how we interact with society, and how we interact with the church, there, people have some really funny ideas. Some people, the famous some people, some people prefer to imagine a church that is free from any vestige of authority. Kind of like a, a flattened, classless utopia. And that appeals to the human mind. That's, what, that's a lot of what goes on in our society. People trying to do away with authority and structure because we want everybody to be, you know, on on a flat field. And it appeals to the human mind, but it is an overly simplistic fantasy. I'm not here to talk about the structure of society, but if you think about it, this classless image, you know, the church being completely flat, you might have heard it as, you know, the ministry of all believers, that kind of thing. Um, that is not the paradigm for the church of God. And it's not the paradigm for the millennial rule either, is it? And it's not the pattern that we see in the throne room of God. Within the very family of God, the Word, who was God and was with God, there's authority, there's submission, there's structure, there's a relationship. Okay, so go to Hebrews 13. And I, you know, I, I'm trying to acknowledge this can be a very difficult pill for people to swallow. And it calls for wisdom. Okay, so Hebrews 13 says this, short and sweet, nearly complete. Have confidence in your leaders. And he's speaking to the church, the members here, and he says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. And do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So here is instruction to the church. And let me put it a different way. This is instruction to the church to cooperate in a positive way with those Christ has appointed to lead. They are not appointed as overlords, and they're not there to block your way. And you know, you, you take a look at Paul, the pastor. I think he set an incredibly high bar in pouring himself out for the needs of the congregation. So remember that phrase we you know, kind of started this whole section off with, submit to one another. A little more musing on you know, this world we live in. From the 
American Revolution, which everybody you know, likes to think about in this country, from the American Revolution to Karl Marx, we are conditioned to view authority as fundamentally oppressive. And we have good reason for thinking that kind of stuff. When you look at the sordid past of human history, yeah, that is a logical conclusion. But God's answer to this is not to tear apart all forms of authority and do away with any kind of intermediate leadership. God's answer to this problem is to change how we think about leadership. And this is a relevant lesson not only for pastors or elders or deacons, it is of paramount importance for everyone because everyone is in a training program to serve with Christ, to be seated with Christ, and to have responsibilities as king, as priest, as, as, as a teacher, as, as someone who's going to have to make tough decisions. So let's get to the Passover. I said I would draw it all into the Passover. Let's, let's talk about serving and leading with relationship to the Passover. Go to Luke 22. So this is something, uh, let, let, let's you know, add to our understanding of the Passover with this. You might have thought of this before. I hadn't really. But it's something to think about at the Passover as we go through, uh, once again, me for the 37th time, okay? Go through the Passover. Let's think about this. Luke 22, verse 24 through 30 says, okay, and, and, and you look at the setting, okay, in Luke 22, and you're going to see, oh, this is happening at the Passover. They're all there. They're eating the Passover together, okay? And in verse 24, it says, okay, while they're there at the Passover, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Whoa, that's quite a Passover they had there. <laughs> Let's not do that. Okay, I mean, we try and follow the New Testament example in our Passover. Let's leave that part out. Okay? And Jesus said to them, he had an answer for them. He said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, the, you know, the subjects. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For, one, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? So he's kind of turning the tables, if you will. But I, I am among you as the one who serves. I'm, I'm turning the tables on this whole thing. And you are those who have stood with me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I have big plans for you, but I also want to change the way you think about things. This is going down at the Passover. So during the Passover meal, here's the, the twelve men that Jesus was going to have, not only the kingdom, but he was going to have them lead the church. They were going to lead this new thing, the church. And, you know, they're here. They've, he's probably, you know, told them a little bit about what's coming up. And so they're arguing about 
future leadership and you know well I, you know oh I'm I'm this and I'm that and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and and really what's going on though is they're arguing about it in a proud and an egotistical way that's what they're up to pride ego and Jesus answer was not you know what guys I'm going to just do away with all forms of leadership and we're going to be in the kingdom and we'll all just, you know, we'll pick flowers and we'll sing songs. That's not Jesus' answer. His answer was, you have to change your ideas of what it means to be a leader. And, you know, he, he cites worldly rulers as examples of the wrong way to think. And he tells them to picture whatever type of leadership role they're given, to picture it as a form of service to others. And then to press home this teaching, he acts in the role of their servant by washing their feet. And so we'll go through this at the Passover. And that's about, it's about service, it's also about leadership and our whole attitude towards one another in the context. So uh, that would be John 13. And we'll go over this in different, from different angles and different perspectives. We'll get a different one probably at the Passover. But John 13, verse 12 through 16. So this is happening at the same time as that argument and dispute about leadership. And Jesus is telling you, you've got to change the way you think. Verse 12 through 16. Jesus washes their feet, and he says, okay, you guys, you call me teacher, and you call me Lord, master, and rightly so. You got it straight. For that is what I am. So now I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and so you also should wash one another's feet. And I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus says, you know, yeah, you guys are all subordinate to me. Yet, here is an example of how I treat you. So he's drawing in the whole idea of leadership. He says, yeah, I am, I am your master. Here's how I treat you. And remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to the people who are going to lead and you know, establish the structure, or he's going to establish the structure of the church through them. And he wanted them to get this, and he wanted them to learn this lesson and follow this lesson. And uh, he wanted them to treat others who would be brought into the church in this same way. So let's talk about Passover and your relationship to the church. The Passover is a time to be reminded of your personal relationship to the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you with his blood. That's, you know, that's very straight up. We go through that, we have gone through that in the past few weeks, we'll do it continually. And so the day that you went down into the water, and you came up, you had your sins washed away, right? 
And we remember that at the Passover. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 10. And so the Passover is a time that we reflect, I think, I mean, I do, I think we all do, reflect on our baptism. That day when we went down into the water, we acknowledged and accepted the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. That's, you know, Passover writ large. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16 and 17. He's talking about the Passover here. And he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And we think about that at the Passover, our participation in the blood of Christ, you know, our relationship to God through the blood of Christ. And then he says, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, and we who are many are one body, for we all share the same loaf. So the Passover is also a time to reflect on your relationship to his body, which is the church. And remember that day when you were washed of your sins, when you came up out of the water and you were washed of your sins, and then you had an elder of God's church lay hands upon you and pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. Let's also think of that aspect of baptism when we walk through the Passover. It's a relationship with God, a relationship that you entered into of your own choice. Right? It's a relationship founded, or let's say partially founded, part of the foundation of the relationship, is a recognition of God's design to work through fellow human beings in an organized and structured way. That's what brings you here every Sabbath, because God's working through people and he's got structure. Remember, we are not freed so that we can do whatever. We are brought from darkness into light. We are brought from our sins in this world into God's church. We're in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 11, verse 27. It says, okay, again, musing on the uh, Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, says, so whenever, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, Paul's instruction to examine yourself can and is usually applied to our personal faults and failings, and sort of like, a, you know, a, how did I do this year <laughs> kind of thing, right? Where am I on the sinometer? <laughs> but the situation that he's addressing directly here in the 11th chapter of, of Corinthians is actually, it's about how the members of this congregation are treating one another. And what they're doing you can read through this and think about the context. What they're doing is they're 
they're being they're rude, selfish, and they're full of pride. They had the Passover set up so that certain people were in special room and they got special food, and other people, you're in the nobody room with the, you know, food. And Paul says, uh-uh, that is not how you are to operate within the body of Christ. They were carrying their cultural pecking order over into the Passover itself. And Paul had to say, no, we got to stop this, folks. So what he's doing is, I think, asking them to examine themselves with regard to their relationship to the church. To examine yourself. And I, I think that's part of our examination that, that ought to be part of the Passover and how they behave within the church and their attitude towards it. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 11. Just go back a few verses and take a look at verse 22. He's speaking here about, you know, all this, the shenanigans that are going on. And he says, don't you have homes to eat in or drink in? You know, if you want to have a party, go there. And he says, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? How do you think about the church of God is what he's getting at. Do you, do you, do you, you know, think the church is just, you know, it's a pain? Oh, I wish it just, yeah, I could do so much better. I would arrange things totally differently. Well, just remember, you know, the church is God's way of doing things. What's our attitude towards the church of God? First uh, Corinthians 11, verse 29, which follows hot on the heels of what we were well, talking about, says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Anyone who takes the Passover without thoughtful awareness about their thoughts and actions related to the body of Christ is missing something, something important. Now he's talking about you know, like many things, you know, multiple things are going on at the same time. Yes, he's talking about the bodily suffering of Jesus, a body that's broken for you when Jesus, you know, was going through the symbols of the Passover. He said, this is my body broken for you, talking about the suffering. But isn't Paul also talking about the present body of Christ, which is the church? So, conclusion. The Passover is a time for reflection. And it is a time of remembrance, a remembrance of an important turning point in your life. And we do this every year at God's command. So I ask that you use this Passover to think about and to recognize, to discern, and to assess your relationship, not only with your participation in the blood of Christ, which washes away your sins, but also your participation within the body of Christ, which is his church. A relationship that began when you were baptized and had the laying on of hands from an elder appointed in God's church.